Now, we've mentioned previously that the name of our podcast is being used by a number of people. We are actually in the process of being sued by Marvin Gaye's representatives. We hope that this matter will be resolved very shortly. Please pray for us. Hello and welcome to The Muslims Are Coming, with me, Ash, and my pigeon-killing, horse-grooming buddy, Billy Bazooka. Nice to see you, Ash. Nice to see you, sir. On this week's show, we're going to be discussing how easy it is to get to a war zone, why David Cameron has got so much time on his hands, and what women really want. The head of the Met Police has said sorry to the families of three girls missing in Syria after they failed to receive a letter intended for them. The families complained the letter about a friend of the girls who went to Syria in 2014 was given to pupils instead of being sent directly to them. Sir Bernard Hoganhauer told MPs he was sorry the letter didn't get through. However, he said there was nothing more police could have done to prevent the girls leaving for Syria. In hindsight, we know now that these girls were planning to go and neither the family, the police, the school or anyone else realised that, he told the Home Affairs Select Committee. Now, I I watched the whole Inquisition live and it was fantastic because finally the police got the grilling that they deserved. And it was like, you know when you're a kid, Ash, and you've clearly done something wrong. Like you got into a fight at school or you crashed your parents' car by accident, whatever, and you're guilty. You're as guilty as Stevie G at a DJ conference. Be careful, sir. (laughs) You know, they they saw you take the car keys, sneak outside, start the engine, and then plow straight into a lamppost. And then when your parents ask you what happened, you're like, um... You know what happened was my friend he got he got stuck well, in. You a... twist it, don't you? You, t- you twist it a little bit. Exactly. You make up some bullshit story about how your friend got stuck in a chimney or something, <laughs> and you know they know that you're lying. But just to humiliate you, they ask you, "Oh yeah, well, what was his name?" Mm. And you're like, "Oh, it was my friend um, Groupon." Uh, <laughs> and, <they're> like, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh yeah, well," and they know you're lying, Ash. And they're like, "Oh yeah, what was his last name?" And you're like, "Oh, it was Man." Sminjin. Yeah, Mangish. <laughs> You just carry on lying. But sometimes there comes a transition point where you switch from thinking, all right, mum, just give me a beating so I can go cry myself to yeah, sleep. Yeah, let's just get over and done with it. Exactly. So actually believing your own false narrative. And now fast forward to this investigation. The police commissioners were like two children in front of their dad. Yeah. It was like, and I'm going to do my best Keith Vaz impression here. Mm. So, commissioner, you clearly could have done more to prevent <laughs> this from happening. And the commissioner's like... Yeah, but the parents, they really should have stopped them from leaving. But Commissioner, you didn't actually let the parents know that a girl went to Syria in December from the same school. So how were the parents to know? Um, yeah, but my friend Groupon Mangi, she got the... Bullshit, 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 bullshit. I mean, they were totally humiliated, weren't they? But this isn't the first time the police have been caught with their trousers down, is it? Well, it depends what you mean by trousers down. I mean, if you're talking about gross incompetence, then there's a, there's a very long list of howlers, isn't there? You know, there's the Brixton riots, the Hillsborough disaster, the Stephen Lawrence murder inquiry, the shooting of Jean-Charles de Menezes, the death of Ian Tomlinson, Mark Duggan. It's on and on and on. I mean, there was one funny thing I noticed, though, because there is something about ethnics and the police, isn't there? Mm. I mean, Ash, that's, that's no, undeniable. They love each other, don't they? Yeah. But they're, they're, there's an inherent fear and paranoia whenever they're around. Because even though Keith Vaz is a high-ranking MP, and the solicitor who was present, Tasneem Akunji, is a respected lawyer. Yeah, who was, incidentally, brilliant on that. Totally day. smashed it. 
At the same time, however, there was this moment when the police commissioner came in and you could just tell Keith Vaz was thinking, oh shit, man. <laughs> Police are here. <laughs> he got the ethnic tremble, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. So I watched the entire thing and I thought it was quite conclusive that the police <laughs> and the school should have done more to combat this issue. And I thought the next day the newspapers would at least cover some of the issues instead of shifting the blame to the parents. What ensued, however, was a 10-foot-high tsunami of bullshit <laughs> which washed away any semblance of reality. Mm. Well, the uh, Telegraph chose to ignore the entire inquiry, didn't they? They went with the, uh, with the headline, Missing Jihadi Brides May Have Stolen Jewellery to Fund Syria Trip, <laughs> whereas other media outlets were more concerned with the checklist the girls made before leaving, which, uh, which included, amongst other things, makeup, bras, underwear, boots, and an epilator. I mean, I, 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 had to, I actually had to Google what an epilator was. Because <laughs> judging from the media frenzy about this list, I thought it was some sort of concealed weapon yeah. or like an explosive. It turns out it's just a woman's grooming device. Mm. And I don't mean grooming in the way that the Times or the Tory graph intended. It's mm. actually just a beauty product, which leaves me to conclude that the media were either shocked that Muslim women actually use items that non-Muslim women also use, or... They were desperate to perpetuate this fantasy of the sexual jihadi bride. Now, Ash, I hope you'll forgive me, but I had a look through your bag whilst mm. you were in the toilet and mm. I found some interesting things. <laughs> so I came across some wet wipes, some very expensive hair products. Mm. One of them was called <laughs> Sebastian Crookley <laughs> <laughs> and a DVD box set of Gokwan's Fashion Fix. What are you hiding, Ash? Great man. What are you hiding, Ash? <laughs> Explain yourself. Did you find my AK-47? When is the wedding? And more importantly, can I be the best man? <laughs> now, all of this comes in the same week that former Liverpool legend Graham Souness said that Chelsea Football Club didn't act very British when they showed a lack of sportsmanship during the Champions League fixture against Paris Saint-Germain. And it just makes me wonder... Is everyone annoyed because these three girls didn't run away from home in a very British kind of way? Yeah, because usually when British underage girls run away from home for the sake of love and adventure with their teacher to France, for example, everyone back home is very concerned at how they've been taken advantage of. Three girls running away to Syria, though, is clearly, clearly very different, isn't it? <laughs> the circle of bullshit is well and truly complete, my friend. <laughs> Top Gear presenter Jeremy Clarkson was suspended this week after the BBC released a statement that he was involved in a fracas with the show's producer over the latter's inability to provide Clarkson with a hot meal after a day's shooting. Although that the BBC has thus far remained relatively tight-lipped on the affair, subsequent unofficial reports have claimed that the BBC star smacked his colleague around the face following a verbal exchange. The BBC has also announced that the popular motoring programme will not be broadcast until further noticed. This is the latest in a string of controversial statements involving the 54-year-old father of three and close friend and confidant of Conservative Prime Minister David Cameron, who was quick to defend Clarkson and to appeal for his reinstatement. I don't know exactly what happened. He is a constituent of mine. He is a friend of mine. He is a huge talent. All I would say, because he is a talent, and he does amuse and entertain so many people, I hope that this can be sorted out because it is a great programme and he is a great talent. 
Now, what do you think about about this little story then, Billy? When I, when I was an undergraduate, I took a course on semiotics. Right. I don't think I understood much of it, I'll be very honest with you, but the main gist of it was that the world is made up of many different symbols and signs. Right. And all of these things conjure up images in people's heads as they try to make sense of them. Mm. So, for example, a cow might be seen as a potential burger for a hungry American, a source of income to a farmer. Mm. Or in India, the cow has more of a reverential capacity. Mm. But I guess what I'm trying to say is different people respond to different words and signs in many different ways, depending on their context. Mm. But I think regardless of whether you're a humble fisherman in Zimbabwe or a truck driver on Route 66, I'm pretty sure everyone can agree that when you hear the name Jeremy Clarkson, <laughs> there's only one thing that comes to mind. What a total and absolute <laughs> <laughs> Now... Now, I know we've got time constraints, so I'm going to quickly reel off a list of just some of the things he did just in 2014, okay? Right. So this was last year. There you go. So last year, Clarkson was embroiled in controversy when it was claimed <laughs> that he used the N-word while reciting the nursery rhyme, Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, during filming. In the same year, Top Gear is ruled to have breached broadcasting rules after Clarkson used the word slope to oh. describe an Asian man. And then later that year, Top Gear crew is forced to flee Argentina after trouble erupted when it emerged they were using a Porsche with the registration number H982FKL, which some suggested could refer to the Falklands conflict of 1982. There's, there's actually <laughs> nothing left. The only thing left that, that he could do is cover himself in blackface and fly kick Desmond Tutu. <laughs> It's an urban legend in Congo that if you say Jeremy Clarkson 13 times into a mirror, Jeremy Clarkson flies out in a Ford Focus and punches you in the face. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> but he thought he was bulletproof, didn't he? But finally the BBC might actually take a stance on this. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't hold, uh, hold your breath, Billy. Um, but just in case they do, we've got a few uh, replacements lined up, haven't we? We do, yeah. So I think one of the people <laughs> on top of the list, I think, is, uh, is John Terry. JT! Because he's got a, an impressive CV, hasn't he? He's Captain England. And of course, he's Chelsea's current captain. Yeah. Leader. Legend. He's racist, so that's a winner. <laughs> And, just like in football, he's got a couple of teammates to play with. And we all know how John Terry treats his teammates. He'll love the gig. And then second, we've got Nigel Farage, or <laughs> Farage. And that one speaks for itself, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I think Kathy Newman's definitely got a good shout. <laughs> um, My favourite. Yeah. Well, like Clarkson, she's a bastion of journalistic integrity, isn't she? She loves a bit of controversy, too. I mean, she's very good at deception and at using her inflated public position to feed stereotypes. She likes being caught on camera doing things she shouldn't be. And she likes driving as well, doesn't she? To the wrong f***ing place! And finally, the outsider's bet coming in at a long shot, Sol Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> Just because once a prick, always a prick. <laughs> Sell out. <laughs> But like, honestly, though, honestly, why is Jeremy Clarkson there? Oh, my God, I don't know. I mean, he thinks it's weird, doesn't he? Because the BBC keep wheeling him out on Have I Got News For You to read some lines, and all of a sudden he thinks he's Barry Bigfoot. <laughs> but, Ash, don't we need mavericks like Jeremy Clarkson at the BBC? Well, he's not exactly a maverick, is he? I know he. I know there's this whole, you know, all his fans think that he's that some, you know, 
he's the biggest maverick since yeah. Mad Max or something like that. Sticking it to the man, yeah. Yeah, but he works for the BBC. Yeah. You can't get more establishment than that. Yeah. He's mates with the Prime Minister. You know, he's got he's part with you know, he's part of the whole Chipping Norton set, isn't he? What's that? Well, all these uh, showbiz people that live around the sort of market town of Chipping Norton, I think it's in Oxfordshire. Mm. People like Re- Rebecca Brooks lives there. Right. Um, so all the Mavericks stay up there then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I mean he's hardly a Maverick. He's he's connected with all the establishment media outlets right. and the political class. He's white, middle-class uh, man who, you know, has a very, very comfortable life. And is using that vantage point to make these kind of comments. Absolutely. Well, there you have it. <laughs> would you take him out to a Cafe Nero anytime <laughs> soon, Billy? Ash, I would rather watch a musical adaptation of every single film Kira Knightley has been in, including, <laughs> including Bend It Like Beckham. <laughs> With Kira Knightley actually sitting next to me, providing live audio commentary, explaining the inspiration behind every single one of her two facial expressions. Ah, <laughs> uh, Jeremy Clarkson. Someone that makes you wish you had more middle fingers. And now it's time for the man himself, Chax Daniels in the Middle East. Listen, Billy. I've been indulging you for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And I've let it slide. You have. But if he's shit again this week, I want to speak to him and give him a piece of my mind. Ash, you won't be disappointed. It's the angry Muslim news brought to you from the desert. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chax's Muslim News. Angry. Many news stories have made me angry this week, but none have been more infuriating than the following. A Lebanese TV presenter cuts off an interview with a man. This is a story every single news outlet ran with this week, with headlines such as Lebanese TV presenter cuts short interview with Islamist scholar and a female presenter puts misogynist Islamist in his place. The controversy came after all the news outlets quoted the final words of the bearded Islamist as being, it is beneath me to be interviewed by you, you are a woman. When in fact he had said, and I quote, it is beneath me to be interviewed by you, you are a woman who, end quote. Who what? We don't know, because the interview was cut short. Maybe he was going to say, It is beneath me to be interviewed by you. You are a woman who cuts people off in the middle of their sentences. The Guardian newspaper also ran with a follow-up interview with a Lebanese presenter entitled, I don't feel like a hero, it was self-respect, which is part of The Guardian's non-heroic women series. The Lebanese woman was quoted in The Guardian as saying, Why are you interviewing me? And how is this a story in the UK? I thought you guys were fucked. I also want to mention another story that almost made me punch our producer. It's a story about three girls who run away from their homes to be groupies for murderers in Syria. I came across a BBC article that quoted a certain Kalsoum Bashir at the organization Inspire, which they describe as a counter-extremist organization, which I can only assume means they are extremists in a different direction. Discussing how ISIS could lure these girls out of the country, Kalsum says that ISIS have a form of recruitment strategy which manipulates young people into thinking the only way for them to mean anything real is to go and murder people somewhere far away. So they're very much like the British Army. Edgy joke of the week. But Kalsum and the BBC don't stop there, but go on to describe ISIS recruitment tactics as ideological grooming. Ideological grooming? Isn't that just advertisement? Oh no, wait. Grooming. Where have you heard that before? 
That's the other thing Muslims do, right? BBC, thank you for making sure pedophiles in Lancashire and murder gangs in Syria are seen as two sides of the same coin. You fucking shit! I fucking hate this! No, I'm so angry! Man, fucking crap! It's the angry Muslim news brought to you from the desert. Billy, give me his number. Okay, we're really honoured to have Miriam Francois Gerard on this week's show. Miriam is a writer, journalist and academic. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us, Miriam. Absolute pleasure. Now, Miriam, feminism is very confusing. And I think this confusion may have led to fear or even hatred of feminists. Because for some people, when they think of a feminist, they imagine this androgynous looking woman running around Stonehenge smoking weed or burning bras. Is that a bad thing? Well, who's to say? <laughs> Each to their own. Just wondering. But I look at you and it doesn't appear that you subscribe to any of those things, at least on the surface anyway. Now, we'll leave that for another day. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, my, my question to you, Mariam, is what is feminism? Uh, the best way I could summarise it is by quoting uh, someone far more illustrious who uh, once said that it's the radical notion that women are equal to men. Uh, but I would caveat that with another uh, great quote by um, someone who once said that women who want to be equal to men lack ambition. So it's a combination of those two things, in my view. It's a notion of applying the principle of justice to all realms and specifically when it comes to feminism to the idea of gender equality. Right. I mean, could you just tone that down a little bit just so that I can understand what you're talking about? I mean, gender equality, even that term for me is a bit too advanced. So, all right, look at it this way. For centuries, decades, possibly the dawn of time, men have dominated many societies. Not all. There are examples of much more matriarchal societies. And in societies where men have predominated all systems in place have been created to privilege male experience and to create systems which privilege men's perspectives and men's priorities. Right. Uh, a con as a consequence of that, you need a struggle to reinsert not just female voices into the public sphere, which is, I think, possibly a small ambition, but to recalibrate the public sphere so that it takes into account male and female perspectives in an equal fashion. I, I take that on board. But the thing is, I work in, in Kensington and Chelsea and there's some women there. But on, on the surface, it seems like they have a hell of a lot more power and authority than I do. And I mean, they could eat me alive and I feel very intimidated when I'm around them. I mean, how does that work? Is is feminism the same all across the board? Or No, so this is the thing. So I, I think you can't talk about feminism in isolation. It, it, it's you know oppression works at lots of intersections and i think that my main gripe with a lot of discourse in the mainstream is this idea of you know women versus men it's actually a lot more complex than that mm. you can uh, as you mentioned you can have levels at which uh you know class might be a much more significant factor right, right. i still think that you um even in societies where laws have been constructed 
to try and uh, recalibrate, if you like, uh, male privilege in the public sphere, we still playing catch up in that sense. We're still trying to create a system in which predominantly we're trying to create a system in which women have the same rights as men, which is a good start. But ultimately, I think the objective is to create a system in which um, the entire system takes into account female priorities in the same way as they historically have male priorities. So, Rosie, you did uh, your dissertation on uh, The Veil, didn't you, what we, Muslim women wear? So did you find that Muslim women were more adva- disadvantaged than other women, or do you think that's a, a similar type of oppression that they face with regards to everybody else? I was interested in why people in this country seem to be so obsessed with The Veil. Basically, what I found was un- underneath that was a real anxiety about the presence of strangers in inverted commas in British soil. And I think that, you know, discussions about the veil are often caught up with questions about national identity and culture um, and racism. And I think that uh, Muslim women are not disadvantaged because they're Muslim or because they're women necessarily, but because of perceptions about Muslim women in this country, which Miriam just talked about. So what did you, I mean, what kind of extra struggles do Muslim women face? compared to to others or is it is it sort of from the same origin often there's an assumption that um within islam there's a kind of it's inherently patriarchal and that therefore you know muslim women are complicit with within a a a structure that that is inherently oppressive and i i don't think that's the case at all i think that these assumptions are problematic and i think that you know specifically in relation to the practice of veiling whether you're wearing a hijab or niqab whatever people assume that 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 is a patriarchal practice that women should cover because you know they can't be seen in public you know as men for example and that therefore that is that's where muslim women suffer as a result of the perceptions of society i want to caveat as well the other thing about um you know the the notion that islam isn't inherently patriarchal i mean who's islam is the question there are lots and lots of patriarchal forms of islam and there are lots of women who are uh, willing to accept that the hierarchy within Islam as mm. uh, mandated, divinely mandated. Right. I'm part of a, I identify with a movement that does not believe that that is an inherent quality of faith and of our faith as Muslims specifically, and who believes that actually, you know, we can't have justice with a capital J, which I consider to be central to our faith, without taking into account the struggle for gender justice within mm. that. So can you explain one one thing to me? So if there was a job going at, let's say, a bank, and that job was open to four candidates. So if it was open to men and women, obviously, if a woman had a child, then she would not be able to show her... You're just gutted about that job you didn't get at Poundland, <laughs> Billy. Why don't you come out with the truth? It should have been me. It... <laughs> Thanks for nothing, Iqbal. Yeah, so in that situation, if it's based on a so-called meritocracy, if a woman has to take care of her children, for example, then she'll be seen to be less able to fulfil that position. Hey, why does she have to be the one looking after the children? No, she doesn't. But I mean, I'm just saying... What are you saying, show. Billy? What are you saying right here? Because that's what I'm hearing a woman has to look after the child how about it takes two people to make a baby it takes two people to raise a child it should be two people looking after the child the point is the system 
is constructed in a way which means that women are the primary still caregivers for children. Now, if women want to make that choice, that choice should be open to them and society should provide means that ensure that they're not discriminated against subsequently for making that choice, which ultimately, let's face it, is a not small task of forming future human beings for uh, the betterment of humanity. No small feat, perhaps more praiseworthy than mm, cashing up tills at Poundland. I'm just going to put it out there, <laughs> just putting it out there. But the point being that your female candidate with the child who might be up against a male candidate, why would you assume that by virtue of having a child, she's somehow less able to perform that job? I think many women say that having a child makes them a lot more organized, a lot more focused. It means that they pri- they make maximize on their time. They're much more productive. So why would you assume just by virtue of them having a child that they wouldn't be as qualified, if not more qualified by virtue of having that child for that position? So how would you remedy that situation then? I mean, would you? I mean, you mentioned that childcare thing. Do you think that should be part of policy, for example? Do I think it should be part of policy? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a, several ways I think it should be remedied. One, I mean, there's a work at level of social attitudes, which we need to change the idea that, you know, because women carry the child, that the child is the woman's responsibility. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's got to become much more normalised that it's the the shared responsibility of both partners. And when that becomes normalised, it will become entirely normal for a man to say, oh, I've got to leave at three because I've got to go pick up my child, which many women have to do, but have to do it with a sense of shame and guilt that they're somehow not as productive as their male counterparts, when actually that should be the same for both men and women. But I would also do it by, I think that above a certain level of uh, staff, because I think it would be difficult to enforce on small companies, but that uh, companies should be made to create in-house creches, uh, in-house childcare, that there should be policies that ensure that there is a, a much greater work-life balance. At the moment, we allow our considerations of what success is to be dictated by basically profit by, by by capitalist values the idea is you're a successful human being if you're making a ton of money for a big multinational actually maybe success should be redefined by inserting mm, the female perspective here which is that you know actually looking after children and having a family life and um you know raising future little citizens is is a really important part of being a human being that men should be much more involved in and that we as a society should prioritize in how we can construct our systems well thank you very much mariam just to summarize i want to say two things one that was very interesting and feminism does seem like a very complex tradition with many different voices within it and the second thing is that poundland can go themselves (laughs) you definitely deserve that job you are more than qualified for that position at poundland really So we've got a question from Michelle Jean from St Albans and she asks, how did the Charlie Hebdo affair affect you? Well, I think that I would like to defer to uh, my friend uh, Amir, we're going to call him on this occasion, who was deeply, deeply traumatised by the whole issue and called me up in the midst of it and I was obviously doing all these interviews trying to explain, you know, this tragedy and what what was behind it and that kind of thing and um, he just called me up absolutely fuming. He's like, Miriam, can you effing sort this out? My Tinder responses have gone down because nobody wants to swipe someone with a Muslim name. <laughs> and I and I think his plight has not been heard. And I think that we need to really, 
you know, be sensitive to, to Muslims on Tinder who've been <laughs> affected by Charlie Hebdo. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Muslims Are Coming. I'll be away next week, but we will recommence the week after. Please remember to like our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash The Muslims Are Coming podcast and follow us on Twitter at The MAC Podcast. Links to both of these can be found on our SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com forward slash The Muslims Are Coming. If you like this podcast, please share the love. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about Libya with anthropologist Dr. Igor Kerstich. So from me this week, it's a very, very warm goodbye. And from me, ciao, ciao. Goodbye. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not Jeremy, I hope.